Welcome everybody to Dead Talk Live, and today we have with us producer, writer, director, Brett Simmons. Brett, how you doing? Doing good, man. How you doing? I'm doing good. It's a pleasure to have you here with us, and we have a lot to talk about. We're going to just talk about horror, and we're going to be talking about You Might Be the Killer, which I got to oh, say, man. I love that movie. I, I really oh, love you. that movie, and that means a lot because... For me, as a horror fan, uh, there's only a select few horror comedies that I really enjoy. You know, you got your Shaun of the Deads and uh, like Return of the Living Dead going back to the 80s. But uh, You Might Be the Killer is just the right blend of lightheartedness, but yet gore and scare. And we're going to get more into that in a second. The, the first question that I have for you, Brett, is that um, the movie's available on sci-fi. Was it origi- originally meant to be a made-for-cable-TV movie? So, it's funny. The, the movie came about because originally sci-fi wanted it. But what was cool is I have a, a prior relationship with sci-fi. I did a few movies when they had their network, Chiller. Uh-huh. And I did I did two movies for them on Chiller and um, the co-writer on You Might Be the Killer, Tom Vitale. He um, he has a deep rooted relationship with them. So it was like sci-fi was the reason we got a green light. But sci-fi was also really cool about, hey, like whatever, whatever happens, let's just figure it out as we go. Yeah. We just know at some point we're going to want to play this movie, which is funny because the first movie, my first feature film was a horror movie called Husk. Mm-hmm. And that was made for theatrical, but sci-fi back then bought television rights for it before we even started making it. And so, I guess I guess I have more of a history with them than I even thought about till this exact moment right now. But um, they're they're just in the business of as long as we have stuff for our network, we're, we're good. We're to pretty go. open and cool about it. Yeah. So they were they're awesome. The the guys there. So this I, is. I So this is not a movie where you wrote it, directed it, then you had to figure out, you know, how am I going to get this out to people? They came to you and said, you know, can you write this, direct it? Yeah. Well, it was a a bit of a funny story because I don't know how, I don't know how well this is known or not, but it's all based off of a Twitter thread. I did not Um, know that. Yeah. So Sam Sykes and Chuck Wendig. So that's why it's Sam and Chuck in the movie. Um they had this whole Twitter thread where they would, they still do it today where they, they go on Twitter and they just meet up and they almost do these like role play improv, like tweeting back and forth. And so their threads are nuts. And if you look up, um, you might be the killer on Twitter. You can read the original thread and it's, it's brilliant. It's hilarious. And what had happened was sci-fi felt like there was something to mine out of the Twitter thread and even talk to Sam and Sam and uh, Chuck. They're both like very accomplished um, novel writers, and so they were like, "Hey, do you guys have an idea for a movie?" And they're like, "Look, we don't really do that. We're down to bounce ideas, but that's not really our thing." And so, Sci-Fi knew from my prior relationship with them, the executive there that I had worked with a few times knew that I had a, a deep-rooted passion for horror and comedy. So he sent me the Twitter thread and was like, "What do you think?" You know, and, like, and I laughed. I thought it was hilarious, but I was also kind of like, are we really going to, is this the day and age we've reached where we're going to start adapting movies off of Twitter threads? Like, like I know we went from the books to comic books and now we're going to go, we're just going to skip everything else and go straight to Twitter. I was like, I cannot believe this. 
I, but we came up with an idea. And it was a brilliant idea. I mean, I, I never heard that story before. Now, did you have any reservations coming up with a horror comedy going back to the very infamous 80s counselor slasher flicks? Did you have any, like, man, if I don't get this right? Oh, I, I think, I mean, horror comedy can be a very tricky tightrope to walk, I think. Um, I'm very passionate about it and I feel like I have a grasp on it and I'm really glad that you might be the killer found the audience that it found because it kind of helped me not look like an idiot for how much I talk about, like how I feel like you can do it this way. Um, but I, I feel like when that needle is threaded correctly, yeah. it's the sweet spot. It's my favorite thing ever, but it's very hard, um, to do. It's really hard to do. And so I had a lot of hesitation about it mostly because I'm like, I know this is hard. Um, but also I just want to make sure we do it right. Mm -hmm. And I can actually summarize it even better. The first conversation I ever had with Fran Kranz, um, when we were talking about doing the movie, um, cause I'm a big fan of his and I, I wanted him to be in it so bad. He had reservations that really kind of mirrored where I started. And then I was able to talk him into it the same way that I talked myself into it, which is, um, I said, look, Fran, I was like, the only way that this movie is going to work is if it's, um, it just has to be real. Like this can't be a, a, an SNL sketch, yeah. even though as a sketch, it would be funny, but this has to, this has to also be real not and satire. the way that it's real. Yeah. It's not satire. And the way that it's going to separate itself from satire is that the stakes need to be absolutely real. You know, I was like, you, the counselors are, are dying. They're dying in bloody ways. And you don't know why. And then you find out you're responsible for it. And the stakes, the emotional stakes are real, which is why kind of in the third act of the movie, a lot of the comedy starts to kind of take a little bit of a backseat because, yeah. you know, the drama's the drama is real drama, you know. And so that was kind of the big thing for me is was figuring that out in the writing process with Tom when we were working on it, it was like, this can't be scary movie. This isn't a spoof. This isn't satire. This isn't just one long joke. For me, if I'm going to make it, it, it could only work if it was on its own right, a, an actual horror movie for the yeah. people experiencing it. If that makes, if that makes no, sense. No, that makes perfect sense because after I watched the movie, I'm like, you know what? Comedy horror is not exactly the right uh, category for this. And mm -hmm. for me, I just, for me, the category that I place it in, lighthearted horror, if that makes any that. sense. You know what I mean? It makes perfect sense. And it's it's actually I really appreciate that you say that too because everything that I've I've written a movie um I've written I've written some stuff since that you know getting ready to get off the ground that's a similar tone and that's how I always refer to it to people because obviously I don't have a movie to show them I'm trying to convince people to make my movie, right? Yeah. And like oh, guys this isn't it isn't horror comedy per se. It's it's lighthearted horror or one of them is I call it horror with heart. Um, and then another one is, yeah, like lighthearted horror, like horror plus, you know, yeah. but the horror is, the horror is real. Like my favorite example ever is, I mean, Hitchcock always compared horror and comedy. Um, he always talked about how like horror and comedy work hand in hand because they all work off of, uh, punchlines, yeah. like just set up a setup delivery punchline. It's all in the timing and that the mechanics of the two work very similarly. And I, I do completely agree. And when I'm scared, like when my friends freak me out, I actually don't react the way that characters do. We always see characters in movies like, oh my God, the horror of it. 
if I walk into the house and if, if Michael Myers steps out of the door, I'm going to be like, oh, like I'm going to freak out, right? And like I go to Halloween Horror Nights at Universal Studios and stuff, you know, and, and I've, I'm convinced the only reason I get invited is because my friends just like to laugh at my reaction. But my horror is real. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not trying to crack anybody up. I'm freaking out. It just happens to be hilarious for anyone watching. And that was my whole experience watching the original Ghostbusters. You watch the original Ghostbusters, oh, yeah. and if you take if you take Bill Murray and Dan Aykroyd, Harold Ramis, Rick Moranis, you take the comedians out of the movie and replace them with straight actors, that is not a funny movie no. at all. No, Bill it's Murray actually, is, yeah. Yeah, it's actually terrifying, but because it's Bill Murray, because Dan Aykroyd, you're watching characters having hilarious reactions to genuinely terrifying things, right? And, and so that, that's always been the, the formula for me. And is that what you attribute to big success to the movie? I mean, I, I think so because I think it's a really fun thing to experience. But I also think inherently, subconsciously, I'm not going to try and I don't want I don't mean to sound like I'm trying to go like too deep. But I think when people see someone genuinely terrified to the point of having a ridiculous reaction to it, that that almost feels more honest. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, yeah. Like, like I always think dating, like going way back to when I was a kid, like for me, my reaction to being scared is way more like Shaggy and Scooby running in place for three seconds and sprinting out of the room as fast as possible. You know, like yeah. that's my reaction to it, you know? It and is. so when I watch straight horror movies, when I just watch like just straight horror mm-hmm. movies, um, there are so many times that I see reactions where I'm like, this actually feels kind of melodramatic to me in comparison to reality. Like, I feel like this person would deck ghost face in the face you know or <laughs> slam a door on michael myers or just like oh you know that's that's my opinion of it and so sometimes i feel like horror movies tend to lean a little melodramatic and yeah. when back when i was like going back to when i first started writing movies i can see the trap that you kind of fall into because a lot of horror is written a lot of horror movies are written by younger writers um horror is just the easiest way to get a movie made and break in yeah and I'm not saying all of them are, but I'm saying it's common mm-hmm. and it's common when you're writing a script and you're dealing with an intense situation. You have too much time to think about what should happen in this moment, that that's what you end up writing. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, okay, I, well, strategically, you should do this, this, you know, I totally, but the characters don't have time to think that. No, no, I totally understand. So your background, uh, I, I mean, were you writing comedy stuff before horror or which came first or was it always together? Awesome question. I um, it, what's really funny is I've always been a horror movie fan, mm-hmm. um, but I've also always been a scaredy cat, big time. I mean, I'm not even afraid to say it. I have a photographic memory, and my imagination is my worst enemy sometimes. And so, horror no, movies it's tend not, to it's a lot not of uncom- It's not that uncommon. A lot of people writing, acting, directing horror is their way of uh, facing their fears. Yeah, no, it's true. It's so uh, I've. I've always been a fan in that way. Like it was always a horror movies have always been a great outlet to me. Like I've always loved it, but I never, I never saw myself being a horror movie guy. When I went to film school, everything I made was comedy. It was just comedy, 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 comedy. But everything I was watching my free time was like Hitchcock and John Carpenter and any new horror movie that came out in the theater. That's where I was. I was seeing more of those than I was seeing the comedies. So what had happened was um, when I was graduating film school for my senior thesis, I was so frustrated with some of the horror movies I'd seen. I was like, you know, I'm going to take a crack at this. I've heard people talk about how similar it is. And I felt like I had gotten my comedy itch out pretty Mm -hmm. thoroughly. 
And so I want to make a horror movie. And it was a short film version of um, what became my feature film, Husk. It's a mm-hmm. short film called Husk. Yeah. And, um, and it ended up going to Sundance. Like, it, it went to Sundance. Uh, it was the first. I went to Chapman University. It was the first Chapman University movie to ever wow. make it in Sundance. And that was nuts. And I just, I found all, all my success post-film school came from the little horror movie that I made. And then it became my first feature. So it's almost like horror found me, you know, and I think it was just kind of always there. I just never knew and it. Until, you, and you blended I, your comedy background with your new found love, I should say for horror. And yeah, it was a perfect recipe. Now, uh, besides the references in the movie, and I love the references mm-hmm. to all the horror classics out there. Thank when you. you were writing this, uh, what, did you draw for inspiration? Um, well, I mean, I'm a, I'm a big fan of, um, I mean, any camp, any campground slasher movie is high on my list. I mean, I love Friday the 13th. I've watched all of those relentlessly and like basket case. And like, I, I just, I love the genre specifically in the campground. But for me, the the thread that Sam and Chuck had um, was based on a campground, so I didn't really have to choose it. But when it came to trying to adapt it, like Tom and I were when we were adapting and kind of thinking through, like, okay, what the heck would the story be? In my mind, that was like in the '80s when these movies were written. These stories were relatively new, and and the, the movie industry was in a very different place. Whereas now, with online and streaming and social media, I was like, everyone is so savvy if a camper goes to camp and someone dies and they aren't thinking about Friday the 13th, that's actually more of a stretch than thinking about it. You know what I mean? I was like, if I was at a camp and no one was talking about Jason once, I'd be like, okay, this is weird. Like there isn't a world where we aren't aware of these movies anymore, you know? And I think people really have tried to avoid that for a long time. And so when we did this, that was one of my, my first contributions to it was, um, this movie has to acknowledge these movies because anybody, anybody in this situation would not even to be funny. Like it doesn't yeah. even need to be referenced as a joke, just simply as an awareness of it, yeah. because it's impossible to think that someone wouldn't be aware of it. People who haven't even seen the movies would go to a camp and at least be aware in the zeitgeist of pop culture, like that this exists. You yeah. Know? yeah. That was kind Absolutely. of my, my thinking on that. Absolutely. Now what a huge factor to the success of this movie is, Fran and Allison, okay? They're dynamic. And just in the beginning of the movie, he's running from a killer and the whole sequence of him trying to use his phone and wipe the blood (laughs) off his face so he can unlock it. And Allison was amazing. Um, Did you know you wanted Allison for this and Fran? I know you you mentioned earlier that you sort of had to talk Fran into playing the role. How about Allison? Yeah. Well, Allison didn't have to talk her into it either. She was game because the script just kind of like, like Fran wanted to do it. He just wanted to make sure that I wasn't like some jokey director. It was like, he just wanted to make sure I was on the same page as him. Right. Yeah. Whereas Allison, um, same. She just, when she read the script, she just got it. She was like, yeah, I, I get it. I get their relationship. I get why they're talking. I get the tone in which they're talking, you know? And um, I didn't know. So, I'm big fans of both of them, but what had happened was, and this is part of the bigger story of just the whole process of making you might be the killer in general was that 
um, and went from Twitter thread, Twitter thread to script to production to post-production to premiering at Fantastic Fest in less than five months. Um, it was really That fast. is unheard of. It was very, very fast. Because yeah. this was that the green light we had gotten for sci-fi was at that point um, kind of based on the condition of we just need something to play in the fall. We need something to play during Halloween time, you yeah. know? And, um, and so the clock was ticking real fast, but that's what released the, the money and, and flipped the green light on. So, but all that existed was a Twitter thread. So writing the script was like a fever dream. It was just so fast. And then we were in production. I mean, we were actually doing our rewrites while we were in pre-production on the movie. So there almost wasn't enough time to go like, who should, who should play these roles? It was almost like, we just need to get it written and then we just all started throwing out ideas and our casting directors started throwing out ideas for now that we knew who the types were who could be who and of course i'm a big fan of both allison and fran and they their names popped up they went straight towards the top of the list i love to the top of the list i love steve the kayak king (laughs) (laughs) oh man he's one of my best friends in real life he's in all my movies so he's like my michael kane i can't make a movie without him in it absolutely now I found myself throughout the whole movie, as these two are talking, uh, Chuck. Well, you explained it, why the character is named Chuck. But Mm. I got to ask you this. When you guys were writing the script, now, here's a woman, and her name is Chuck. And I found myself throughout the whole movie trying to figure out what Chuck is short for, for Mm. a woman. I never figured it out. Uh, Was that just part of the comedic element to the film? It was, well, it, I mean, at the end of the, like the Twitter thread was between Sam and Chuck. So we knew the conversation was Sam and Chuck and in their Twitter thread, Sam was the one on the campsite just going, Hey, like, you know, I think people are like dying. And then Chuck was the more rational expert trying to help him, you know, like, okay, like, do you have a weapon? Do you have this? That's all we had. And so it was more just kind of like, okay, so we know one's at a campsite, but where the heck is Chuck? And obviously if Chuck knows all this stuff, Chuck should be in some kind of pop culture type store yeah. or something chuck should be working so that chuck is like trying to juggle work and this conversation because otherwise if chuck was at home i feel like there'd be like way more alarm involved with it yeah know? so so we knew that pretty early on but we just never it's like i said we were writing the script so fast we just knew that it was a conversation for the length of a movie between one friend named chuck and one friend named sam is one it wasn't till we finished writing it that we kind of started stepping outside of the box and going hey you know what like there's gonna be a whole lot of two dudes talking but chuck doesn't need to necessarily be a guy it might actually be really interesting if chuck isn't and so then the debate came up should we change the name and i was like no just call her chuck so i always thought it was like either like short for like her name was charlie or her name was charlene or you know something like that and then chuck just kind of became the She's like a tomboy, and so she likes. She tells everyone to call her Chuck. Was kind of like my thought about it. But. Okay, awesome. Now, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but you okay. were had a very short cameo. So you're <laughs> one of the the uh, customers. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, that was you. Okay, because yeah, I that saw was the me. Movie. Yeah. Okay, I knew that was you. Um, Good eye. Well, uh, what you you just you know wanted to do a little? Do you do that a lot in your films? Do a little what? cameo. Yeah, let me. I'll say this first. I think 
I'm all for director cameos. I do think they can be a little bit of a cliche. So I'm never like, I'm never actively trying to. Um, it also stems back from my first movie, Husk. When I did Husk, I was going to cameo as one of the scarecrows because I thought it'd be really funny if like I played one of those. It's a killer scarecrow movie, I should say, if you don't know it already. And so I, yeah. I was like, I should, I should play one of the killer scarecrows because no one will know it was me. And that's the coolest way to do a director cameo that no one knows you did. And it'll just be a fun story on the director's commentary. That shoot was so stressful that when I started putting on a scarecrow costume, I was like, I can't do this. I'm not going to be able to go to the monitor. This costume's taking too long. We're running out of too much time. So I didn't do it. And ever since then, I was like, production's too stressful for me to worry about putting myself in front of the camera. But then every single movie, there ends up being something where production's like, ah, you should just jump in there and do it. Because I have an acting background. I used to act. Yeah. And so everyone that knows me and finds that out, like, oh, you should jump in there. You jump in. I'm always like, nah. But then when I knew Allison was going to be in the movie, the comic store was really hard to um, find our extras for because it's a low-budget movie. We're shooting in the middle of Louisiana, and a lot of the comic store stuff is, was in the middle of the night because the whole movie takes place at night. Mm -hmm. And um, and at the campground, the only people involved are our primary cast, You know, everybody that's already attached to the majority of the shoot. The comic store was not the case. It's really hard to like, hey, can you come into the comic store and – not deliver a line at three in the morning, <laughs> just stand there, you know? And so it was also by necessity. We, we were like, we need someone to just be standing at this counter and have a reaction to Chuck when she hears that Sam chopped someone's head in half. Yeah. And yeah. I was like, ah, I can do that. The irony of it is that I needed more takes than Allison ever needed. Allison was prepared professional. And then I'm sitting there just going like, can we get one more take? I don't know if I liked my reaction on that one. And it's funny because your scene is like a split second. Fast, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you would. I'm. I'm actually impressed that you even saw it. No, it I did. I so did. Bad. I noticed it. Now, uh, the the feel of the movie. I'm talking about the the film quality. Uh, has that '80s feel, you know the, mm -hmm. you know, and with the writing is. I'm assuming that's something you wanted purposely done. Yeah, I'm, I appreciate that you even picked up on it. But yeah, I'm a child of the '80s, and it's just. I think it's so ingrained in me that it's almost like unconscious decision-making at times, but it was very conscious with this one. I really, um, I thought this movie was going to be at its best if it felt and if it felt like, and looked like a Friday the 13th movie from back yeah. in the day, as opposed to something too modern. Even the camp Vista sign, it was similar to crystal Lake. Yeah. It, we were trying to find, we were trying to play with ideas of name. Like we were, we, me and the production designer, Matthew Whittle was amazing. He, um, I mean, we had a whole brainstorming session just on what are riffs on the Crystal Lake name that aren't Crystal Lake, but at least feel yeah. like they mirror it just a little bit. Um, but a lot of the references were those movies. Again, not to, not to spoof um, or satirize, but the idea was like, use this as a leaping off point. You know, this should feel like mid-80s architecture. Just this should feel like mid-80s design. I so see, I see it as more of as, as a homage, a homage to those films, yeah. you know? Yeah, really, you're right. It yeah. is it, much more that, yeah. And another aspect of this film is, that is really cool is that the kills are not, like, linear, starting with zero. No, you started out the film with Counselor's Dead a lot. 
(laughs) And then you worked your way back and forth. I mean, I think we've seen, we saw uh, Steve the Kayak King's death like at least three or four times. From yeah, he's all dead and alive, like all over the place. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and from all different perspectives and and whatnot. How did it? Uh, how did that idea come to you that you wanted to jump around with the deaths? Yeah. Oh man, I I'm so glad you asked this. This is one of my favorite questions with this movie. So, because really, this is like the Friday the Thirteenth meets The Mask meets Memento. It's really kind of like how I like looked at it in my mind. I was like kind of starting the story at almost the end and going backwards, but um. Because the whole idea was, if the mask is possessing Sam, you know, we had a lot of debate. When are we going to reveal this? When are we going to reveal he's the killer? And I thought the audience was going to be too smart for us to to draw that out longer than the first act of the movie. And Mm -hmm. that it would be more entertaining to know it sooner and see how he wrestles with it sooner. Almost like a werewolf movie, you know, like someone who, the kind guy who has to deal with the fact that there's a full moon out. Like, I'm not a monster. but And so anyways, but with his Chuck, with his conversation with Chuck, and this, again, comes right back to that Twitter thread. Mm-hmm. The Twitter thread starts with Sam Sykes tweeting Chuck Wendig, just going, hey, so I'm at a campsite, and I think all the counselors are dead, and I'm not really sure how, but do you have any tips of like what I can... It's a lot like... like We lifted most of their verbatim conversation for like the first chunk of the movie. I mean, we added our flourishes and Fran and Allison added their improvisations, but for the most part, um, a lot of that dialogue is... Pretty yeah. straight up from what they wrote. So their Twitter thread started with kind of a little bit of a retroactive. Tell me what happened, and Sam's a uh, Sam's Sam's amnesia about some of the events or fogginess about some of the events was key to withholding the mystery uh-huh. by starting at the end. So we knew it was going to be nonlinear, um, just because the Twitter thread was. I think at one point there was a idea to play with making it a straight ahead linear story, but it just nah. didn't. No, wasn't no, the same. No, we've all seen. I, the, my argument was not that I'm, not that it really matters. But my whole argument was that we've all seen these movies. Essentially, like you might be the killer should be a horror movie we've all already seen. Yeah. Right. Like it should feel like we know this movie. We just don't know what it's like when this is how it's playing out, and Sam is the one dealing with it. Mm-hmm. You know. But we all know this movie, and so why start from the beginning? We've already seen that one thousand times. Um, So that's what would make this one interesting is starting at the end. But then what happened was all the first drafts of the script, the nonlinear gets really hard to follow, right? Like you're kind of trying to track it in your mind. And especially when you don't have the visual of a movie yet and you just have the text on a page, it was really, really tricky for everybody to grasp. And so we were like, okay, what we need to do is we need to start. Maybe we add some titles with a clock was one of the suggestions that Tom and I got like 7 p.m. 4 p.m. Mm-hmm. midnight but what i was arguing was i was like the thing is, is that the clock is i don't even read the clock when i'm watching movies like i just don't I, I those are details that i miss 12 o'clock doesn't mean anything to me yet so it's not always necessarily a fact that i would retain you know yeah but what's really funny about horror movies and again it's the body going count. off of it's the body count the body count is the clock that mm-hmm. you gauge the timing of these movies by right there's always an opening kill we always we all know this right and we all know the biggest massacres are going to be happening later in the movie yeah but we know where we are in the movie every time a movie's on tv right i know where we're at in the movie based on who's alive and who's not and so that was kind of my pitch to everybody was like guys the body count should be the clock like if we start every flashback with a tally of who's dead and who's not the audience is going to get it and they totally i mean i think it as soon as we did that in the script, everyone was like, this is 
hilarious, but yeah. also so helpful. Yeah. Yeah. And then the debate was, well, how are you going to give it away? You're just going to tell everybody how many people are dead in the beginning? I was like, no, let's just say a lot. A lot. And then it'll all unfold. <laughs> and that's why Sam's like, yeah, I'm not really like, counting isn't really my thing right now. But anyway, so yeah, so the body count was our clock. So let me ask you this. Uh, the kills, since there were mm-hmm. a lot of them, um, which is your favorite? The head chop. I love the head chop. The in split half. in half. Yeah, that always gets a big reaction in the theater because of how yeah. shocking and fast it was. But that's my, that's my favorite. It's just a bloody gag. I mean, I also really liked the um, – I mean, I liked all of them. I just really wanted it to be gory. I was like, because it's not going to be a – this isn't going to be a legitimate camp slasher if we're not getting buckets of blood. Oh, yeah. But the, um, the girl getting her head smashed in the refrigerator, the refrigerator was another one. Door. I was like, people are going to hate this, but it's going to be awesome. Actually uh... – when I when she first fell to the ground and the way she was positioned, her neck was gonna was like I I, I sort of expected when he was slamming the door for her head to actually become decapitated and to fly oh. off. <laughs> I I will tell you that that idea was definitely tossed around and it's expensive to do that and that was the only reason why we didn't. <laughs> that would have been that would have definitely been what I would have rather done is just popped her head right off. <laughs> You know, it'd be awesome. Now, watching this, it looks like you stuck to practical effects the whole way through. Is that yeah, the whole way through. They're the only... Let's see. No, it was the whole way through. The only thing that we did was... So, when Brad gets his arms chopped off, mm-hmm. um, he was standing there with his actual arms, and we had to make marks of where I wanted the arms to be chopped off at. And then we had practical stands in stand-ins that we then photographed to basically digitally graft onto his arms and so even though there was cg involved with the kill it was a cg merger of practical element elements but that was again one budget it was a low budget movie so cg wasn't completely like within the realm of reality for us but also that's true for most horror movies like this most of them are low movies oh yeah the charm of them has always been practical kills. Like I feel like even a bad practical kill feels so much better than a good yeah CGI. You know? And so I was telling everybody, I was like, listen, we got to do everything practical. And if the practical falls apart and doesn't work, it's okay because we're working in a movie genre and yeah. space that happens all the time and movies that we love. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, now you co-wrote this with Tom. Is most of your writing experience with a co-writer or is it mostly solo and, I mean, is it 50-50? I mean, I would say it's 50-50. I definitely, um, the thing is I really do like collaborating. The way I always phrase it is that I'm um, I'm definitely a director first before I'm a writer. Um, and so sometimes the director needs to be uh, forcibly removed from the room when I'm writing. And I'm not always I'm not always so good at removing him myself, and so having a co-writer is great because they kind of help maintain some objectivity. Yeah. And what I mean by that is like, like if I'm excited about a movie that I'm writing, I can sometimes get hung up on very directory things yeah. that are getting in the way of the story. Like, oh, but this scene could be so cool, even, and I can't see. I I almost like get so hung up on how cool the visuals of this could be, or an audience reaction to this that I sometimes lose this lose grasp on whether it's actually 
right for the story or not. It's good to have so, somebody there to check you. 100%. And I, I mean, two heads really are better than one. And there are some incredible writers out there that can work alone. And I have worked alone. And I'm proud of some of the stuff I've written by myself. But I always have a better experience and more confidence in the material when I've collaborated with somebody. Yeah, yeah that makes total sense. Now, you said earlier that you, uh, uh, Fran and Allison, did a lot of their own stuff. Uh, you gave them full yeah. freedom. If they wanted to ad lib, just go for it and let's mm. see how it comes out. Yeah, and it was, I mean, they're also both very disciplined actors who came in prepared and ready on such an exceptional level that... And, bef and for were... our audience to know, Fran is from Cabin in the Woods, mm -hmm. uh, and Allison is, of course, from American Pie. That's their big yep. claim to fame. No, yeah. I'm sorry, go and on. And I was really, and she was Willow and Buffy the Vampire Slayer, yes. which is really where I started to see the parallels between her and chuck and um, yeah i know everyone was like who, who like you just trying to copy joss whedon i was like it's not my fault he cast great people i'm just grateful that they're acting in my movie that's all um no but my style my directing style and it's the other reason why i like directing what i've written is it's also easy for me to be on set knowing <laughs> knowing what we need and what we have room to play with and maybe make more organic because mm -hmm. um, when you're writing you're doing the best you can to anticipate the the actual moment but then as a director you're actually facilitating the actual moment you know it's like staging staging a kill on the page is completely different than actually being there in the woods with the killer and the victim staging yeah. it and sometimes the reaction that an actor wants to give is actually more accurate than the one that's written this isn't everybody's process but for me the magic of making movies is that um like i mentioned i had some acting experience is just because when i was um, first pursuing film, the first lessons I ever got in directing were all in theater. Mm -hmm. um, so I went to I went to a theater school and they didn't know what to do with a film guy. And so they just threw me in all these theater programs. But what I realized when my film journey really started taking off was how powerful it is that that camera can capture lightning in a bottle. You know, it's yeah. like what we do doesn't need to be perfectly rehearsed or recreated. I'm sorry every single time because if we got it on camera once and it was perfect it doesn't need to be perfect again we can explore it a little bit and mm -hmm. so and, and they're both so smart and just knowing the material knowing the character i'd almost always do a few takes with them as written and then just go hey let's take the reins off on this one and just do your version of this like what is your version of this moment or this scene and every time they do it i'm never disappointed most of them go into the movie. It's awesome. Now, we as the audience, we got to see the final product where, you know, they're talking to each other on the phone. Now, when they were filming this, how did these two work it out, not actually physically being in a scene together throughout the whole movie, but being together on the phone throughout the whole movie? How did they handle that? Man, that's another great question, man. I mean, it is funny when... This is something I'm very proud about with the movie, but you're absolutely right. When you actually think about it, it's kind of an odd thing. Yeah. They have they have so much chemistry together without ever being on screen. And mm -hmm. I feel like that's the biggest the biggest compliment I can give to their performance was how they radiated chemistry with each other without ever actually being in a physical space exactly. together. Right. Yeah. And um and because of the schedule, the schedule is as such that we had to shoot all of Allison's scenes 
together mm-hmm. um, at the comic shop because of just the comic shop was a functional operating comic shop, which yay for them because I miss comic shops and I'm glad to know that there are some still open. How but, many um, days did you have with it? Just one night? We, or? Two, two, two nights. nights. So okay. we had two, two, two 12-hour nights. Okay. And, um, and so it was very fast, um, but I was just very deliberate about what I wanted to do with it. So we were able to do it, but it meant that there wasn't, there was no luxury of like, there was no room for her to come to a camp and yeah. sit behind a camera and actually act with Fran on the set. Mm-hmm. Um, Fran, Fran came to the comic shop to see Allison just cause they know each other and say, Hey, but again, like she didn't actually really need him there to be reading the lines and he didn't really need her to be. They, they knew each other already and they just filled they just got the characters mm-hmm. so well, you know? So it was kind of a funny thing. A lot of times I'm playing Chuck, like off camera for Fran. And a lot of times I was also playing Sam for Chuck off camera in the comic shop. Yeah. But um, it was kind of something we just had to trust, you know, like when we were filming, I was like, I just got to trust that everything that they're doing is going to work together um, in the edit as well as it's feeling like it's going to, you know? Just, and I mean, feel like it did. Think about it. Think how hard it is to be as an actor to do a whole film where you're talking on the phone and there's nobody on the other end right it's it it is actually acting and that's the funniest thing is like the best acting you don't even notice right like it's such a it can can be such a thankless thing like film in general like the best production designer builds a set that is so good you don't actually notice it exactly (laughs) like the best score that you don't actually really notice it just moves you it's just funny so but that's ma- how i feel about their performance exactly i mean the makeup was great the practical effect who was uh in charge of the makeup oh the makeup is a makeup team based out of um new orleans and they were kind of a younger team who had interned with um one of the bigger um companies out there well they did a great um, job thank you yeah i mean they they are they are horror hounds and that was what was so cool was they were Again, like based off of just the time frame and stuff, there were a lot of limitations based on who was available and how long we could have them on set. And I, I knew I wanted practical effects through the whole movie, which meant we needed someone who could come be there for the whole movie. Yeah. And um, and so they were really into how ambitious I was with some of the gags we wanted to do, but they also were just giant horror movie fans. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, listen, they they get this. That's more than can be said about some people that may have may may have all the tools and all the everything that they need but they don't really get the genre you know and they came yeah. in just with all these ideas of how to just really lo-fi practical pull yeah. things like half the time i go hey guys like i want to i want to stab this guy in the stomach and then i want when he has this gator knife i want him to pull it out and because it's the serrated like gator knife just yeah. all the teeth to like pull all the guts out with it when he does that i don't know how to do that how do you do that and oh well you know in this movie they did a gag that's kind of like this oh there's also the next thing you know they have a diagram they're like just mapping out how we can do it practically on set and i was just like that's all let's go yeah i mean it was awesome it was so much fun as what was cool about it was everybody making the movie behind the scenes is such a fan of the genre everyone was so excited that even when we were doing some of these practical effects People weren't off in their trailers. Everyone's like gathering around, like we're about to do a big stunt. You know, like oh, this is gonna be so gross. Just wait for it. Wait for it. Ah! Yeah, it was awesome. Okay, uh, another fascinating character for me was Imani. All right, now mm. everybody else is sort of like the '80s throwback cookie cutter camp counselor. Imani, mm-hmm. this beautiful woman, uh, badass, is 
a counselor and and you're like when you first meet her you're like wow i would never peg this woman as a camp counselor right who came up with her character was she part of that the whole was, twitter uh exchange no, she was not she was um just kind of uh she was just born out of the first draft of the script because what we had thought when we were working on it was we knew that the camp counselors it's just such a funny line to toe with a movie like this like we've already been discussing but again skirting that line of homage and reinvention versus shtick and satire right uh-huh but we knew we knew the camp was going to feel familiar to an audience we knew a killer showing up at a camp is going to be familiar there's nothing we can do about that so let's lean into it let's make the camp feel a little familiar let's make it feel like this exists in a movie they've already seen mm-hmm. and with the body count being our clock and the fact that the body count is really serving Sam's story of how am I killing all these people? Most of them also need to feel like some of the archetypes we've seen before, but we knew it was going to be completely stale if that's all it was, was archetypes. And so we pegged really early on that um, we, we wanted Imani to not be the archetype. We're like, we need someone that kind of, as we need one of the counselors to transcend the archetype and be different than we expected. Stand out, right? yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. And same with our final girl. Well, who we find out is ends up being the final girl. Where it was like, it was, again, type of, we need someone that seems like an archetype who starts to change, right? Mm-hmm. We need someone who kind of emulates the sweet girl, but then starts to turn into something that Darker. we didn't expect. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. Yeah. So it's just kind of playing with the, playing with the cliches and the expectations as much as we can. But with the money, I'm, I'm glad that you reacted to that because i was really proud of how that that character came together and her and sam's relationship i like that she was she was really tough and yeah you don't expect to see her here but she also didn't expect to be here and that's just like with this movie yeah you don't expect to see her in a movie like this no. and she's not reacting like characters in a movie like this she's reacting like herself and so it was really fun to play with that exactly yeah she was a great she was a great addition to the cast a great character you know you you had to love her and we thought she was dead and then she wasn't dead she ended up being dead it was a whole back and forth right uh what would you say was the biggest challenge in directing this film if there were any like some things that you might have gotten stuck on you know the hardest thing was the um i well i should say the non-linear part of it was the hardest when we were writing mm-hmm. um like because we were just having to put tom and i were just needing to put cards on the wall i mean he's he's in new york he's based in new york i'm based in california so we were also writing from opposite coasts yeah but we each we each had like our diagrams of mapping out you know kind of timeline that was the writing process was so hard writing non-linear like if anybody out there listening wants to write a non-linear movie just be prepared it's sounds imagine. so much more fun than <laughs> it actually is it's rewarding but it's hard work um but shooting a movie um shooting a movie was actually one of the more fun experiences i've had the hardest part of it was just that we shot on location we didn't do anything on a set or on a stage so we just had crazy elements i'm i'm deathly afraid of spiders and when you're filming in, a, in an actual Louisiana swamp oh. at an actual campground in the middle of the night, I mean, the spiders were attracted to our lights. And I mean, and the spiders would be like trying to hold my fingers to my face. So you can get a reference, but they were wow, like my, like they were, I mean, you know, you're had, not the first director who I've interviewed who has directed in Louisiana who said the conditions are harsh, real harsh. Cause it's hot. So during the day it's hot and humid. 
and then at night it's also still hot and humid. <laughs> but then you have just the elements are really brutal you know like the, the, the swamps, vegetation the, the spiders yeah, and it's a. I mean, my hat is off to the grips too, because it's even worse for them. They're the ones having like set up lights in the middle of all this brush and swamp and like muddy earth, and so I would say that being on location was probably the hardest part. But again, it was never like a nightmare. The schedule was tough too, because we we didn't have a ton of time to shoot the movie. We shot the whole movie in fifteen days, which was the fastest I've ever had to shoot a movie. Wow. Um, but it worked because Fran and Allison were just so prepared. And then I came prepared with, I didn't mess around with stuff I didn't want to do. And so we, it worked, but it was a lot of work. It was hard. Now you have equal credits, almost equal credits in directing and writing. Uh, would you feel comfortable writing something and handed it, handing it off to another director? You know, that's a, that's a great question. I, I, I would be so curious to hear what other writer directors have to say about it. Um, because for me, uh, if I have an idea for a movie that I think is worth writing, oftentimes I also feel like it's worth directing and it's really hard to, um, separate the two. Like I said, the writer and director in me don't, they don't separate from each other very well. Um, but some of the best writing experiences I've ever had, I had writing for, other people because it was almost like hey that's an idea that you're wild about i think it's cool enough that i could come up with something fun with it and it's almost like not directing it like i mentioned yeah. earlier when we were discussing like the director never comes in the room for those mm -hmm. scripts and um that's always a lot of fun because i'm yeah. no longer worried about like I, I wrote an action movie and i was just like you know what this car is going to blow up because that's the best thing for the story. And I don't need to worry about whether you can pull it off or not. It's not my problem. And that was awesome because I, I'm constantly when I'm writing movies, I know I'm going to direct. I'm already in production mode in my head. You yeah. know, it's like, Oh, he falls down here. He falls down four stories. And I'm like, how are we going to do that? Don't worry about it. But I mean, I am, it's, I'm going to have to worry about it. Like it's hard to <laughs> separate. So, so I do have a lot of fun in that sense. Okay. So let's flip the question. How do you feel about directing someone else's writing? I, I've had a lot of fun doing that. So I do know that um, when I've written it, it's almost like writing the script is my prep process uh -huh. because I've writing it by sheer nature of generating all the material. I'm already in the throes of all the subtext and all the story arcs and character arcs and everything. Anytime I've directed anything that I didn't write, um, I had to learn how to do that prep because I'm used to not having to do that prep, mm -hmm. you know, so I had to learn to like, kind of, okay, so I need to really start figuring out, okay, what are characters thinking in this moment? Cause I didn't think it for them yet. Yeah. And what are they going through in this story and where do they start, where they finish? What's the best way to stage this? Cause I haven't already pictured it when I was writing it, you know? So it's almost like I might as well have written it with the amount of depth that I need to try and like dive into the material, but it is a lot of fun because I also think that, I mean, I've had the fortune of working with some, scripts written by some writers that i really respect and <laughs> so i assume my... i assume when you're taking on a directing job that somebody else wrote that both writer and director spend a lot of time together for the writer to you know share his visions with a director and the director give his input back to the writer there's a whole new after the script is done like it's it's a whole brand new collaboration that has to restart right. again Oh, exactly. And I feel like, you know, directors are able to kind of um, 
not intentionally poke holes in the script, but really probe with difficult questions for the sake of wrestling with the material to get it and either yeah. either hear what the writer was thinking or maybe address an issue the writer wasn't thinking, you know? And that's a lot of fun. It can also be, I mean, I've heard, I've heard stories about directors and writers not getting along. I haven't been in that situation, fortunately, thank God. But um, I have heard that sometimes it can be really problematic, like writers yeah. being on set kind of hovering around just like you can't do that yeah and it's really tough because it's like and i get why a lot of writers become producers because as a writer i would also want to be because they they want to make sure that they get to you basically kind of birth this baby and you want to see it you want to see it kind of grow into its adolescence you know you don't want to just hand it off to a stranger and trust that yeah the stranger's going to handle it as best as they can so i mean i definitely get it but i also as a director there's part of me where it's like it's also kind of nice sometimes when you're not here so i can just make a decision and yeah get it done you know totally i totally understand now you might be the killer is rated r correct yes and that's obviously because of the gore and well i mean it's all the gore uh was sci-fi okay with that did they you know i mean did they want to sort of maybe cut back on some stuff to maybe bring it down to a pg-13 or something like that well great question and i i love i love to be able to answer because again it's really it's really tooting the horn for sci-fi they have no issue with gore gore can be whatever it's all language for them this sounds great to work with i mean honestly like they they I, I don't know what everyone's opinion is of sci-fi now. I remember back, like way back in the day, like it was kind of like a sour, like, oh, you don't want to make a sci-fi movie. I don't know what that is now, but I think they are awesome. And they, they're all fans of the genre. They all get it. Yeah. I mean, they have a great show on right now, uh, Surreal Estate with Adam Corson. It's awesome. And I've it's had, so good. I've had Adam on the show, and he loves with sci-fi I've had another star from the show as well. And it's a, it's a great channel. I think it's an underappreciated channel uh, to be honest. I think it, yeah, it's, I think people need to need to give it a chance to discover. I mean, I can only speak from my generation, but yeah. I just feel like maybe there's a false perception of what sci-fi is. They, they are no. not what you no. remember from back in the day. No, They're absolutely awesome. not. Yeah. Now moving forward in your career, do you want to, which, genre do you want to explore different genres do you want to stay in the horror comedy realm you think that's your comfort zone do you want to expand your comfort zone um you know it's funny when i did you might be the killer what was great was it was the first time that i really got to do a full-fledged um horror comedy or or light-hearted horror mm-hmm. um which i really do feel like is my sweet spot because all of my um experience and training before was in the world of comedy but all my fandom really came from horror and so i do feel like it's a marriage of my two um it's just a real nice sweet spot for me so when you might be the killer was done and i watched it with an audience for the first time and they all liked it and like it just had a great we had a great premiere fantastic fest which one of just the highlights of my life so far was just getting to be with that audience specifically because i know they're like my people and for everybody to dig it and for the screening to go so well, I was like, man, I'm like, this is the first movie where I feel like I finally checked all of my boxes as you, opposed to most of it. my boxes. Yeah. yeah, like I just got that. I got to do everything I've always wanted to do with 
you know, filmmaking and a movie and tone and genre. So I'm really trying to stick with it because I really only got to do it with You Might Be the Killer and I'm not, I'm not done yet. So I'm trying to do some more. So everything I've written since has definitely been leaning into that side of my taste. But I also, I mean, to answer your question, so sticking with the lighthearted horror kind of horror comedy space is very much something I'm excited about. But I'm also really excited to um, dive into some action. I just love, I love action movies. Yeah. I love the pacing and the energy of it and and you know i i'd be up for directing a straight comedy too comedy yeah, is i think you'd be great always great now you. you said you're uh, a child of the 80s so am i it's true hypothetical question here if you had a chance to reboot a movie from the oh. 80s which one would you pick oh gosh this is so hard i mean it's I, like it's oh. real hard um let me think um i'm trying uh, to think uh, i'm trying to think myself like which one well i'll say i'll say i'm not saying this is my answer i'm hoping that if i start talking about this that the actual answer will come to me but i did have a chance to pitch a remake of Pumpkinhead. oh and um and what was cool was i love Pumpkinhead a lot and when i was thinking about what i would do i was like what do you even do how do you even touch that but then when i started thinking about it, i was like this could be kind of cool and this could be kind of cool. And I realized, Oh, this would actually be, there's a lot of fun to be had with these movies. Um, so I did think about, I did think about that. Um, uh, it's just so tough. It is. Like, There's so many. I mean, you know, Sleepaway Camp, uh, Pumpkinhead. Awesome. awesome, awesome, awesome. And, you know, what do you think of uh, horror today compared to the horror in the 80s? You think it's progressed? Uh, do you think it's become maybe a little bit one-dimensional? You could say it was one-dimensional in the 80s with it all yeah. being slasher. Now it's a lot of uh, mostly paranormal stuff, which I do love very yeah. much. There is yeah, some slasher too. movies. I, I always appreciate like what you did when someone can make uh, a modern-day slasher flick, especially in a campground that's so cliched, and yet make it fresh, new, and exciting. Um, yeah, thank you. I really appreciate that. I was hoping, but you can't control whether you actually succeed at it or not when you try. <laughs> but um, I, you know, it's funny. I have, I think, the time that I, I mentioned earlier that when I made, when I finally did make a horror movie, my short film Husk, um, it was kind of birthed out of a frustration I had had with the horror movies I was seeing, and that was in the early two thousands, yeah. like between two thousand two thousand five. Um, I wasn't like super stoked. There are a few kind of cool horror movies, but I wasn't overly, I mean, my favorite horror movie I saw from that time period was the ring. Yeah. Um, and I still love the ring, but I, I was otherwise really frustrated with the genre. What's crazy is when you think about it, the eighties, what was so exciting about the eighties and also so charming about all those movies that we love was that they didn't really know what they had, right? Like they just, mm. and they didn't really know the rules and, and they the didn't critics really know they ripped them apart. Do. Right? No, exactly. I mean, yeah. now they're classics. Exactly. That's yeah. the thing is like, well, when they came out, they just weren't understood. Um, but because they weren't understood, they also weren't really restrained. Yeah. And that's the magic of those movies. Whereas then I think you kind of start to roll into the 90s and into the early 2000s. And I feel like what became stale was the awareness of it. And now everything was, it, everything did feel restrained. It mm -hmm. was kind of like to me, the era of, Make it as scary as you can, but if you can also make it PG thirteen, that'd be great. You know, exactly. it was like it's trying to put as much thing as much as they could into a box. Yeah. And um I personally 
think the challenge of that sounds exciting, but I think with a lot of movies that I was seeing, they all just felt restrained. They didn't feel they they didn't feel like a genuine form of an expression or story to I me. And I, I'm keeping it general. I'm not saying any names. No, of no, no. I hear you. I hear you. I'm just being general. And um, but though, what I did think was cool was that the pendulum, which always swings back, really did start to swing back, and movies, horror movies, again began to become the expression of an artist and a little bit more out there and a little bit more unrestrained. Like that's, I'm a huge fan of James Wan. I think James oh, Wan is, do you know, today, today his new movie malignant came out. Malignant came out. I'm, I'm 100% watching it. I'm hoping I'm gonna, to go. I'm going to watch it tonight after the show. <laughs> no, it's on HBO max, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm do it too. I have no reason to plug it except that I just am excited. Oh, to I know watch me it. too. Okay. I'm excited to watch it as well. But anyway, he's Brad. a perfect example. We are out of this hour just freaking flew by. We are literally Holy out of cow. time. Yeah, it's been an hour. Dang. It's been an hour, dude. Wow. It's been a blast talking to you. Thanks, man. I, I always hey, love same. talking to fans. Um, you know, you could be the serial killer, was brilliant. You might be the serial killer. Sorry, it was, it was brilliant. You did a great job. It was funny, lighthearted. I would I would call it a lighthearted horror as opposed to a comedy horror. That's that's how I would classify it. Thank you so much for being on our show. We got to bring you back me. on again. I look forward to your future stuff. Uh, thank Thanks, you man. to our audience who tuned in tonight. Stay safe. Have a good weekend. And until next week, on behalf of Brett and myself, stay safe. Stay walking. Good night.